The reading for this morning will be taken once again from the book of Jonah. As we work our way through the book of Jonah, we've now reached the third chapter. Jonah chapter 3, which you can find on page 1068 of your pew Bible. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. In the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a book in the church library here called Do Hard Things, and it's written by Alex and Brett Harris. This is a clarion call to teenagers in our lives and encourages them to have high expectations, to push beyond what today's society tells them to expect of themselves. They look at five categories together. Things that are outside your comfort zone, things that are beyond what is expected or required, things that are too big to accomplish alone, things that don't earn an immediate payoff, and things that challenge the cultural norms. While this book is aimed mostly at teens, these five categories are categories that resonate with the rest of us too, aren't they? Those are ways in which each of us would hopefully like to stretch ourselves, that we could grow and become more effective instruments in God's kingdom work. And yet, there are also areas which we recognize that we need to submit prayerfully before the throne of God if we want anything to get done at all. Because we know that of ourselves, we wouldn't push ourselves to do hard things. But we can do them by the grace of God and by his Holy Spirit. Now in Jonah's day, this was no less true. Jonah's desire was not to do hard things. It was not to do what needed to be done, what God had called him to do. 
Jonah's natural inclination was to run the other way. And yet, despite that, God worked a marvelous thing in his life. God, in his grace, worked something wondrous. We already saw his being brought to submit to God, realizing his own sin in the first chapters of Jonah. We saw him turn to God in his darkest hour and cry out for salvation. And we saw him come to the recognition that his greatest captivity came when he was running away from God and not from the fact that he was caught in the belly of this fish. His greatest freedom and salvation could be found in the presence of God, whatever his circumstances were. Today we see once again God's grace and work in Jonah to do that which an outsider would have, from the first, not considered possible. It's much too hard to convince a man like Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh. It's much too hard to convince him to do such a difficult thing when there's even in Nineveh so much opposition. Yet, we see God's grace in Jonah's life at this point in time. And we also see God's grace in that it's extended beyond the borders of Israel. We see God's grace not limited merely to one man, but to a whole group of people. And so we'll consider that under the following theme and points. Jonah preaches to Nineveh. And we'll see, first of all, an obedient proclamation. Second, a shocking transformation. And third, a wonderful salvation. This passage in Jonah is is remarkable, isn't it? And the first verses in this passage especially, the opening words of this passage are words of such grace, and yet it's so easy to pass over them quickly. Let me draw your attention to them for a moment. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time we easily pass over these words without thinking twice about them. But consider for a moment what they mean. Just prior to this, Jonah was in the belly of a great fish. And the reason for that was because of the choices that he had made. He had decided it would be better for him, that it would be easier for him to run from God. God had given him a specific calling a charge as a prophet of the Lord to carry out his will. But by choosing to run, he had rejected that calling. Compare it to today, maybe. A minister or an elder or a deacon who has been ordained by God, put in their position by God to carry out his will. Now imagine for a moment that that elder or deacon was asked to carry out a particular aspect of their task. And they said, no. It was too much for them to want to do. Imagine if, for a moment, that they picked up stakes, and they ran away to another province just to avoid being there to carry out their task. 
How well do you think that would be received? Of course, it's, it's one thing if somebody isn't able to do their task because of the fact that they need to be released from their office for one reason or another. But that's not what we're facing here, is it? It's someone who picks up stakes and leaves, abandoning everything in its place. Such a person would not be well received. They'd be certain to lose their position. And yet these opening words of Jonah 3 that we find here, these opening words are identical to the words that we find at the beginning of the book, Jonah chapter 1. You can see it a little bit there already in uh, Jonah chapter 1 verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, it looks somewhat similar here in the uh, English, and we can see it even more clearly, a similarity even more clearly in the Hebrew, because there's only one word that's added. It's the exact same call. One word added. Apart from the word second time in Hebrew, this phrase is exactly the same. By the grace of God, Jonah is receiving a reset. God returns him to his former dignity and to his honor as a position, in his position as a prophet. And he sets him on the road again. That's the grace that's been shown to him. He's been given a second chance. And this time there's no hesitation. Sure, there's going to be difficulty. God says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. You may find the words, that great city, can be found in other translations as that great city of God. Some commentators say that's because God was so greatly concerned about that city. Others suggest it's because of the fact that God, who views all cities, sees that as being one that stands out in particular in size and in splendor. But what's more likely than these, however, is the fact that the name of God is tied to this in what's called a divine superlative. So a city of God, you'll find similar language elsewhere saying cedars of God or the mountains of God. It's when things are considered particularly great in splendor or size that this word is used. So by this we can see that Nineveh is considered not just a great city, but an exceedingly great city. And that was reason for hesitation in and of itself. It wasn't the capital of Assyria yet, but it certainly was a major city. Filled with trades and gods, foreign philosophies and foreign tongue, it required three days if you were to explore every aspect of it. It seems that they spoke in Aramaic, which at the time was a language that was somewhat different from that which was spoken in Israel, the Hebrew that they spoke. There were all kinds of other obstacles and barriers that they found. And yet when God sets Jonah on the road again, despite these obstacles, he goes. He didn't know the reception that he was going to receive. Here in North America, street preachers are often shouted down. They're threatened, sworn at, spat on. 
In PNG, they're considered a day's entertainment. They're considered entertainment for those who are shopping in the marketplace at the time. And sure, they result in short-term success and approval. People will applaud and they'll uh, cheer, they'll say words of approval. But sadly, they don't have an immediate, they, they don't have a more long-term impact that you can see for the people who are hearing it for the first time. Jonah might be received as a curiosity, as an entertainment piece, or he might be driven out, scorned, spat on, maybe even killed. Reason enough for hesitation. And yet, he doesn't hesitate. How many of us would have hesitated here? How many of us would have taken to doubting? If not doubting, we would at least have taken a moment to scope out the city. We would have come up with a ministry plan. We would have studied the demographics and considered where we would be the most effective. Set up a target audience and a plan of attack. We would have aimed for the path of least resistance and then set up seminars and speaking schedules and pamphlets. Now, that's not to say that all of these things are wrong. By no means. But what we should recognize is the power of the Word of God. If God so desires, then nothing can take away from His work. And we've already found that for ourselves in Jesus Christ, haven't we? Every spiritual and earthly power set itself over and against Him, and yet He triumphed over them. With that reality as our strength and that knowledge as our spur, do we recognize the truth and proclaim it? Do we recognize God's call in every aspect of our lives and respond to it? Jonah wasn't always this way. Do we recognize God's ability to change our reluctance in our lives? Jonah during the time that we've spent with him over the course of this book, has come to recognize personally that God is all-powerful. That what God commands, he also provides for. He tells us to do something, and he will give us the strength to carry it out. And if the end result is against what he wants, then it doesn't matter if the whole world is against him. If the end result is what he wants, and it doesn't matter if the whole world is against him, it will come to pass. And so this is the reason why Jonah doesn't hesitate. God has commanded Jonah to preach to his people. God has given him the grace. He recognized that God would give him the strength and that God would give him the words. And so he goes and he preaches. In the very next verses, we find a shocking response. Not only do the people of Nineveh hear the words of Jonah and decide that they're not going to kill him, but let me read it to you for a moment. Jonah 3 verse 4 and following. Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed in God. 
proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. What a remarkable event, isn't it? This city that requires three days to go through, on the first day of Jonah going into this city, his message outstrips him. He starts to walk through the city, calling out its imminent destruction. And in the first day, the news races ahead of him. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, while what we see here is the core of his message, written down here for us today, we can see from the reaction of the people that he spoke of more. They wouldn't have recognized that his proclamation was a true one and that their punishment was a just one. And so we can infer that he must have preached in a similar manner to the words that we find in the book of Nahum later, calling out their sins and convicting them, shocking them with the refrain, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And hearing the message that Jonah preached, they are convicted and they humbled themselves before God. The people of Nineveh, they see this man, this, this Hebrew, from a nation to the south of them, coming through their streets. They see him boldly proclaiming their judgment. And it cuts them to the heart. It shocks them. They recognize now where they stood. They were doomed. Just like Jonah himself had been not so long ago in the belly of the fish. They themselves are doomed. And they knew that their punishment was just. Aware of their conviction and aware of their imminent death, they, however, do not despair. Instead, they take to prayer. They call on God for forgiveness. They put on sackcloth to constantly remind themselves every moment of the day as it chafes. Every moment of the day to call on God. They fast so that their hunger pangs can direct their mind to a need that's greater and more immediate than near food. They pray fervently and continually recognizing that it's their last hope casting themselves before God's throne, the people of Nineveh beg for mercy. And so it can be said that they believed God. They heard the judgment. They knew they fully deserved what was coming to them. Convicted of it in their hearts, they turned to God for mercy and they cried out for his grace. What a shocking transformation this is. A people who are known for their brutality, a people who have a reputation for their wickedness and their sin, turning around 180 degrees and calling out to God. What's the equivalent to this? Maybe it would be something like Chicago or Detroit. Those are cities which have a reputation. Here in Canada, I don't know what the equivalent city would be. I don't know, maybe, maybe downtown Toronto or something. You can just imagine whole people suddenly turning around 
and calling on God. Does that give you a bit of an idea of the immensity of this? Casting themselves before the throne of God, they ask for his mercy. And it wasn't just the people themselves. When word of this message reached the king, he himself repents in the most public way possible. The length of time the news took to reach him is uncertain, but there is no question about the speed of his reaction. He follows the news by making official what has already seemed to have started as a grassroots movement among the people. We read, he rose from his throne, he laid aside his robe, he covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. He too had been led to the recognition that their punishment is just. And he immediately comes forward with personal repentance, taking personal responsibility for what had come to pass. We read, he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent, turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Who would have thought that such a man, such a great pagan ruler, while not the king of his nation, certainly a powerful ruler within his own right, the king of a prominent city-state within his nation, that such a man would so promptly respond to this kind of a proclamation? Oh, that our own world leaders would respond that way. Nineveh stands in judgment of us. It goes to show the power of God, doesn't it? Even here, we have the invisible hand of God at work behind the scenes, touching this heart, moving that hand, bringing life where there was death, directing a mind to abandon the darkness within and to turn its attentions toward the light. Some of you here today may feel like you have turned from God. It's not unusual for people to have times where they feel like they're beyond the reach of God. And yet, here we see a man who by all accounts from the Jewish perspective would have been beyond the reach of God crying out to God. A man who, from the average Jew in that day and age, God shouldn't have cared about. Crying out to God. We see a people crying out to God. It seems that Jonah didn't give them any hope that they would be saved. In fact, their doom seems pretty certain from his perspective. and We can see that in the later chapters. And yet the people cry mightily to God to turn from their evil ways and to cast themselves on God's mercy, saying, who can tell if God will turn and relent, turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? If such a people can do that, can know that their doom approaches and yet still cast themselves on the mercy of God, how can we stand back and do any less?
if we see that we have turned away from God, how can we think that we have turned away so far to be beyond his reach? There's no shrugging of shoulders here. There's no question of what will happen, will happen. There's the people that have turned themselves to God and that have called on him, begging for his mercy. We have an example here of people who had no earthly hope and yet cast themselves on the mercy of God. How can we do any less? Think of the promise that we find in the New Testament, Romans 5 verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. When we were enemies with God, he sent his son to suffer and to die for us. Being reconciled with him, let's now throw ourselves at his feet. Let's ask him for his mercy, for our sin. This brings us to our third point. This realization that it's a people who would, you would think would be beyond the interest of God that's turning to God and asking for his mercy. It's made all the more apparent considering who these people were. These were longtime enemies of God's chosen people. There's little chance that any city was more likely to be considered a greater threat to the people of God than Nineveh, the rising star of the Assyrian Empire. Who is less deserving of God's mercy than this pagan nation? Who is less deserving than a nation that had not only rejected God, but had also taken part in horrible sins and embraced pagan gods? And yet the question of deserving never played into it at all. While he didn't realize it at the time, Jonah himself was a living and talking example of this fact. We can't assume that Jonah's story about God's mercy to him and and through the great fish became known to the people. Yet the Jews, reading the narrative of Jonah after the fact, would certainly have been aware of it. The parallels that can be found between these two instances wouldn't have escaped their notice. God had cast judgment on a man who was rebellious. On pleading for mercy, he was granted salvation from his doom. He was released from the belly of the fish in order to bring a people to repentance. His release was a symbol of God's mercy for those who humble themselves before him of God's grace and his forgiveness to the repentant. Now for the Jew who would have been reading this narrative of Jonah's, the question would have arisen, does this mercy extend beyond the borders of Israel? This is a question that is of absolute importance to us today as well. Because today we are the people who are beyond the borders of Israel. We're the people who are outside of that kingdom. We're the ones who would otherwise face the doom of God. Can we find deliverance? When we ask for mercy, when we find release from our sins, deliverance from our addictions, 
and lifetimes spent with all the wrong priorities. The simple words that follow in the book of Jonah are astounding. And they wake us up to the reality of this. They say then, God saw their works, that they turned from the evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. That is the mercy that God shows to those who repent. That's the mercy that he shows to those who believe even beyond the borders of Israel. They recognize their sin. They humble themselves. They cry to God to show his grace, and he relents. We don't know if this generation remained faithful. In fact, due to Nineveh being destroyed for these very same sins about 100 years later, you can read about that in Nahum. It seems that even those who did fully repent and did not train their children in God's ways, their children continued in the folly of their parents. But we have a greater hope. We have a more lasting hope. We have a deliverance that's fulfilled in a much richer way in Christ. We hear Jesus speaking of this to the Jews in Matthew 12, verse 40, saying, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the fish, in the heart of the earth. This was a sign to the Jews. It was a sign of condemnation for them because the men of Nineveh found life after Jonah was released, but they rejected the Christ. But for us, it's a sign of salvation. Just as Jonah came to preach and God used that to turn the hearts of a city beyond the borders of Israel, so too today does he show concern for those who are beyond the borders of Israel. Those who turn in faith, can find the mercy of God. Not only does this come as a great comfort to us, but it also compels us to look beyond the borders, beyond the four walls of our church. Our God has a great concern for the cities of this earth. Our God has a great concern for the city of Owen Sound as well. All who hear his name proclaimed. To all who hear his name proclaimed, he offers the free gift of grace, the free gift of salvation. They can have the opportunity to, to respond to it. All who stand against God have for now the doom of God hanging over them. But they also have the chance to receive salvation, forgiveness, and redemption in the blood of Jesus. His emergency, emergence from the tomb was a chance for them to share in, the victory, in his victory over death too. We have this gift to share. We have this opportunity to speak to those who are around. Let's take the chances that we have and let's show them that the grace of God can be there for them. That's not just for us, but it reaches beyond the borders of our church, beyond the borders of our four walls. That this God who has shown grace to us also shows grace to them.
Amen.